Next, ReachMD's special series, Focus on Diabetes. This month, we're taking an in-depth look at diabetes, the disease now affecting nearly 1 in 10 Americans. Tune in all this month for the latest research, treatments, and prevention methods to gain new insights for your practice. Glucose regulation is a complicated process governed by many different metabolic factors. Increasingly, we are realizing that even sleep has an important role to play. Welcome to our special series, Focus on Diabetes. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, Director of Foothill Psychiatry in Boise, your host, and with me today is Dr. Kristen Knudsen from the Department of Health Studies at the University of Chicago. Her research focuses on the association between sleep and health, particularly diabetes and obesity. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Dr. Knudsen, now, how could sleep affect glucose regulation? Well, what's interesting about the relationship between sleep and glucose regulation is that sleep is actually a very long period of fasting. If someone were to fast for seven to eight hours during the day without sleeping, their glucose levels would continue to drop. But this doesn't happen during sleep, and that's probably very adaptive. Specifically, what's been observed is that glucose utilization is greatest during wake and lowest during the non-REM stages of sleep and intermediate during REM sleep. And also glucose tolerance, which is the ability to metabolize exogenous glucose, reaches its lowest point in the middle of the night. However, how sleep exactly affects glucose regulation is not fully understood. I've never thought about it that way, but sleep is fasting. So I'm a little confused. When we sleep, does our blood sugar rise? It does. One reason our blood glucose levels tend to rise is that during sleep, there is a reduction in the glucose utilization by the brain. It's estimated to reduce by like 30 to 40 percent. And so that would mean there would be more glucose circulating in the blood. And also it's possible that there's reduced glucose utilization in the peripheral tissues while we're sleep and recumbent. And particularly during non-REM sleep, as opposed to REM sleep or awake, the brain is using the least amount of glucose. Okay, so we're just not burning it up so therefore more is around systemically. Okay, got it. Now, what effect does this have on insulin secretion? Well, insulin sensitivity seems to be reduced at night, as well as the amount of insulin that gets secreted in response to the elevated glucose levels in the blood. And so there is reduction in insulin sensitivity. Again, these are related to the stages of sleep. Again, non-REM sleep, particularly the stages three and four, which are the deeper stages of sleep, also called slow-wave sleep, that's when we see the lowest glucose utilization, and so we'll see the highest levels of blood glucose during non-REM sleep, which means in the beginning of the night. Non-REM sleep is more predominant at the beginning of the night, while REM sleep is more common in the morning at the end of the night. And so blood glucose levels do change throughout the sleep period. They increase in the beginning of the night and then drop at the latter half of the night, returning to pre-sleep levels right before we wake up. And for people who aren't terribly familiar with sleep cycles, so, so REM is a very active time of sleep? REM has also been called paradoxical sleep because the brain waves, the EEG, look like wake, almost exactly. But your body's paralyzed. Like there's no the muscle atonia. There's no movement. And so that's probably why it's intermediate between non-REM sleep and wake, because the 
EEG frequencies are very similar to what you see in a waking brain. Okay. Okay. So we have really this this ebb and flow then all night. Yeah. We do cycle through these stages. It doesn't just go from you're in non-REM sleep, then you're in REM sleep, and then you wake up. It cycles through that throughout the night. But again, non-REM sleep is much more common, particularly slow-wave sleep in the first half of the night, and then REM tends to dominate in the second half. Now, what happens in patients that have more and more, we're talking about slow-wave sleep deficiency, or what happens to their glucose and insulin in that case? Well, that's not been studied extensively because some of these techniques are more complicated involving constant glucose infusion and 24-hour blood sampling. But because a lot of this is associated with slow-wave sleep, one would predict that if you don't have slow-wave sleep, you're going to see some impairments or effects on your glucose metabolism. Now, what effect does sleep have on appetite? Well, there have been some studies that have been conducted specifically in the laboratory that have seen effects of sleep restriction on appetite. And in these studies, we compared two nights of four-hour bedtimes to two nights of 10-hour bedtimes. And then we measured two hormones involved in appetite regulation. We looked at leptin, which suppresses appetite, and we looked at ghrelin, which is an appetite stimulant. And after the shorter sleep condition, leptin was lower, the appetite suppressant, and ghrelin was higher, the appetite stimulant. And this would suggest that if we'd given the patients as much food as they wanted to eat, that they would have eaten more. And we did ask them about their subjective hunger and appetite. And after the short sleep condition, the appetite and hunger ratings were about 25% higher than after the 10-hour bedtime. And if that translated into actual caloric food intake, that would be about 500 extra calories per day based on your average 2,000-calorie diet. And that's a lot. That's a, that would, could lead to some significant weight gain. 500 calories a day, so... 25% increase in appetite, if that equaled 25% increase in food intake. Right. So that's what, a little more than a pound a week you would gain. And then what's worse is if you looked at what foods they wanted to eat, we saw that their appetite for, like, high-carbohydrate, high-fat foods, like pasta and potato chips and french fries and cookies, increased a lot more than their appetite for the other types of foods. So they might be preferentially choosing even less healthy foods for that extra 25%. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Kristen Knudsen. We are discussing sleep, appetite, and glucose regulation. Now, Dr. Knudsen, so, so that laboratory test, that sounds like that's acute sleep deprivation. There was another study where we had approximately one week of short bedtimes compared to one week of extended bedtimes and saw similar results for leptin. They didn't measure ghrelin in that study, or and they didn't ask about hunger and appetite. But generally, our studies are restricted to a week or two, and so it's unknown that if you do this for your entire life, what the effects on your appetite are going to be. Right, because, of course, many of us are in a state of chronic sleep deprivation, and we wonder if somehow the momentum shifts. Now, does this translate into an increased risk of diabetes? Yes. I w well, based on both the results on the weight gain, which can increase your risk for diabetes, and the effects on glucose metabolism, it would suggest an increased risk of diabetes. And there have been large epidemiologic studies that have looked at self-reported sleep duration and either the prevalence or incidence of diabetes and have seen an association between being a short sleeper less than five hours, less than six hours, and increased risk of having or developing diabetes. So given what we know about our cultural change in sleep habits, what are the societal implications of your research? Well, if sleep loss 
can in fact cause diabetes or obesity, and there's still more work needed to confirm that. But if it can, then this means that the increase we've seen in our country and worldwide in diabetes and obesity could be partially explained by the fact that we're reducing our sleep duration and chronically choosing not to get enough sleep. And if that's the case, maybe we could start to work at improving people's sleep, educating them about sleep, and help to prevent the development of diabetes and obesity or improve the health of those who already have these conditions. Now, what happens if someone has a sleep disorder, let's say something like obstructive sleep apnea or sleep disorder breathing? How does that affect this situation? Well, people with obstructive sleep apnea have been shown to be at increased risk of problems with metabolism and insulin resistance. And I think Part of that may be due to sleep loss. With those with obstructive sleep apnea, they stop breathing for 10 to 20 seconds at a time, several times during the night. And that means there's actually two different problems going on. One is hypoxia, that because of the cessation in breathing, their blood oxygen level is dropping. And that in and of itself can have effects on sympathetic nervous activity and cortisol levels. But also because every time they have one of these breathing problems, it causes an arousal. It wakes them up and brings them out of the deeper stages of sleep. And so their sleep is very fragmented. And that can reduce the amount of actual sleep they're getting in addition to impairing the sleep quality. And that can lead to an accumulation of a sleep debt due to the disorder, which also can affect sympathetic nervous activity, cortisol levels, and increase their risk of insulin resistance. So people with apnea are you know, getting a double whammy of both sleep loss and the hypoxia. But both ending up in the same lousy pathway of (laughs) increasing sympathetic output and the cortisol, which then would lead to insulin resistance, right? Right, exactly. And then that can increase their weight gain and risk of diabetes. Wow. So do we see that in epidemiological studies, that obstructive sleep apnea patients have more obesity and diabetes, or is this just a theory? Oh, no, there's some large, like, sleep heart health study, for example, have looked at people with obstructive sleep apnea and seen increases in insulin resistance, risk of obesity, diabetes, and the, the more severe the obstructive sleep apnea, the greater the risk. So there is a dose-response association. What do you see happening now in the future? Where is your research headed, let's say, in the next 10 years? Well, the next step that really needs to be done is more intervention studies to see, well, we see associations, we see these effects when we sleep restrict healthy people. But what happens if we try to improve or extend the bedtimes for people who already have these conditions or at least are early on, for example, people with impaired glucose tolerance who aren't quite diabetic? If we improve their sleep or get them to sleep more, can we help reverse the situation. And I think that's the next thing that needs to be done are more intervention studies. Now, I wonder, again, most of our listeners are out there practicing medicine. Let's say you have a diabetic patient. I wonder, is it worth getting a sleep study? Oh, absolutely. And I have two reasons. One, I did a survey study among people with diabetes. So these were people who already had type 2 diabetes and just did sleep questionnaires And then we got a measure of their glycemic control, the hemoglobin A1C, from their medical charts. And we found that people who had reported worse sleep quality or insufficient sleep had higher levels of hemoglobin A1C. So they had worse control of their blood glucose levels. And yet, despite hearing over and over again from these patients that their sleep is terrible, they have a lot of trouble sleeping, they don't seem to report that to their doctors. And so it may be up to the doctors to ask their patients about their sleep. And also... 
other studies among diabetics who have done polysomnography have found a high proportion of them have sleep disordered breathing, ranging from like 40% if you use more mild up to 15 to 20% if you look at the severe sleep disordered breathing. So I would encourage sleep screens from the clinic in patients with diabetes. Wow. So really the endocrinologists need to buddy up with the sleep lab. If 20% of their patients have a severe problem, and that's huge. It could be, yeah. You know, my personal opinion is I, I think sleep really is neglected and that, you know, speaking for myself, that I certainly learned nothing about sleep in my training. I think we had one one-hour lecture in medical school and in my residency, we never saw a sleep study. It was just not ever discussed, and that's in psychiatry. Wow. I don't know how much better it's gotten. I mean, it's, it may depend on the institution if they've got a big sleep research component that's pushing for it, but I think it does need to be expanded to more than a single-hour lecture. Well, I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Kristen Knudsen. We have been discussing the effect of sleep restriction on glucose regulation and appetite. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to our special series, Focus on Diabetes. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Diabetes. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.